9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, and we are joined in Washington, D.C. by... Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, freshly sprung from the Georgetown University Law School faculty retreat. Are you happy to be free again, Rosa? I have retreated as much as I can possibly retreat. Um, And also with us in Washington, D.C., we have Ed Bruce of the Financial Times. Would you like to retreat, Ed? I, I have retreated um, and I'm now regrouping in Washington. I've been on the road in Iowa and New Hampshire and various places for obvious reasons. So tell us about Iowa and New Hampshire, Ed. What are, what are we missing from the coverage, which seems to uh, to me to be uh, just sort of one you know attack against somebody versus followed by another? And the gradual, and, and, and everybody seems to have forgotten that Elizabeth Warren's in the race. But what, what are you picking up out there in the world? I, I think just the sort of the depth um, and feeling of the split between um, Sanders and the moderate candidate, whoever that might be, probably Bloomberg. And what a slow motion train wreck this is because it's extremely hard talking to the Sanders people, but in, in other settings than Iowa and New Hampshire to the Bloomberg um, the constituency, it's extremely hard to see one uniting behind uh, the other. And uh, as I say, slow motion train wreck is what I'm kind of dreading about this process at the moment. And it's very hard to sort of pick a scenario um, in which um, that isn't going to happen. Yeah, I get that feeling too, Rosa. You know, you've been in a retreat, which is a great place to be. I'd like to be in a retreat until November, uh, the rate this is going. But it seemed to me that, you know, the Democrats were being handed this uh, opportunity on a silver platter. All the polls show that almost every Democrat beats Trump. And yet, you know, one by one, they seem to be, you know, making bizarre choices. I mean, we, we, we look like Sanders may end up with the most delegates after the primaries, but then you don't know how the, the, the um, voting during the, the, the uh, convention is going to work, uh, and he might get robbed of that, which would divide the party. You've got Bloomberg spending $400 million so far. Um, uh, I saw a, a, a thing today that suggested that on social media, he's bought 2 billion impressions so far. We haven't gotten even until Super Tuesday yet. Um, uh, he and and Sanders and Biden are all, you know, 77, 78 years old, would be well into their 80s, uh, even in their first term. Um, uh, and... 
it, it, you know, it looks like the Democrats are self-destructing, but maybe I'm just pessimistic. And that's why I turn to you, Rosa, because you're never pessimistic. Well, self-destructing is, is what Democrats do best. Um, so that is, in fact, what is happening right now. It's incredibly depressing. It's incredibly frightening. Um, and I would like to just make a public service announcement which is that every person who does not think Trump is a good president, and I'm assuming most of our listeners fall into that category, there is only one important thing for you to do, which is vote for whoever is a Democratic nominee. And I don't care if you have to hold your nose to do it. Hold your nose while you go knock on doors and canvass through them and while you give them all of your spare money, because that is the single most important thing. We've got to get Donald Trump out of the White House. Nothing else matters. I am not crazy about Bernie Sanders. Uh, I have preferences between the others. Um, I still think Biden is the person most likely to beat Trump. But if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, I am going to do everything in my power to get him elected. Uh, and I will be so happy if he wins. And I think everybody needs to be saying that to themselves about all of the candidates. We cannot afford to squabble with one another at the end of the day about this stuff. Um, I, I would love to see all of the candidates tonight at tonight's debate come out and say very, very strongly and very, very clearly uh, that they will each support one another 100% and they will call on all of their supporters to support one another 100% and that that will extend to speaking at rallies for whoever is the eventual nominee. It will extend to sharing policy position papers produced by their respective policy teams. It will extend to sharing fundraising networks. I, mean, I, I would like to see all of them say that. Uh, because I'm really worried about the fragmentation in the party that is going on right now. And I think they can take the lead in telling their supporters that is all that matters at the end of the day. We, you know, I, are there big differences between Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Mike Bloomberg, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar on policy issues? Yes, there are. They all pale in comparison to the differences that all of them have with Trump. Yeah, well, I think that's certainly true. In fact, I think if you went over the Democratic list and you said, you know, are, do, are they ostensibly against inequality for fair taxes to preserve the environment, to extend health care to more people, um, et, et cetera, et cetera, I, you know, I think you would get uh, every single Democrat to agree on those things. And I think you have the Republican Party pulling in the other way. Um, having said that, Ed, the president's approval rating is at a recent high. Um, you know, even though, you know, he was impeached, he should have been convicted. He then followed that up with, you know, sort of doubling down on autocracy. And uh, and recently, I mean, in the past couple of days, he's just been pardoning every ne'er-do-well he could, he could grab hold of. Um, uh, and and yet, you know, there, he seems to be doing well. It it actually seems like the president's base likes his corruption. They they want, you know, they see that as him sort of flying in the face of the establishment. You know, am I misreading that? You you you're out there. Did you talk to Trump supporters while you were out in across America? Not not too many in in these in the, in, in the caucus and the, and, the, and this primary, but um, you know if, if you if you start from um, the point that you think the system is poison anyway, um, then this becomes quite Putin-esque. Because then, well, let's let's have our poisoner, 
um, you know, in charge of the system. Um, you know, it, they're, they're all they're all as bad as each other, which is what Trump is, you know, working overtime to to try to demonstrate, um, uh, or, or at least to you know get his supporters to believe they're all as bad as each other. So if we're going to have a rotten, corrupt system. Let's have let's have a, a, um, our person and uh, you know somebody who's good at playing it, um, and that clearly works with with forty five percent of the electorate. The you know the there's been a lot of political science in that since Karl Rove started demonstrating the theory that there isn't a swing voter, and there's been a lot of there's been a lot of political science since then um, to to bolster the case that really. Uh, our idea of elections where, you know, um, uh, open-minded um, voters pour over competing policy proposals and then weigh up, you know, which the best candidate would be for president. There's a little bit of a sort of folk theory of democracy myth in today's world. It is a turnout game of your own people, and it's a question of how inflamed they feel. And Trump is very, very good at inflaming his people. And this, this you know... Um, quite apart from the um, deeply, viscerally worrying things that Trump is doing with the legal system, quite apart from that, just in terms of this year's election, uh, I think uh, is a problem for the Democrats. Because whether Bloomberg is the nominee or somebody Bloomberg plays Kingmaker 2 as the nominee, uh, as an anybody but Bernie nominee, um, or whether it's Bernie, you're going to have a real turnout problem on the Democratic side because one part of the party is either going to feel betrayed, the Bernie part, if, if it isn't Bernie, um, or, or um, they're going to um, they're going to feel terrified and maybe even reluctant to turn out and vote if it is Bernie. And so, if this is correct that we're playing a turnout game here a level of enthusiasm or a level of vituperation for the others, uh, for the other side game here, then Trump knows how to play that game very, very well, and the Democrats don't. Yeah, you know, which has led us, Rosa, to have a bunch of Democrats go, well, I don't care if Mike Bloomberg spends a billion dollars if we win, that's good. Let's do everything that we can. Let's out-Trump Trump. Let's attack him. Let's spend all the money. Let's Citizens United him to death. Um, and I'm totally with you, you know, blue no matter who, et cetera, et cetera. But I gotta say, it really sticks in my cross that, you know, there are perfectly decent, moderate candidates, Amy Klobuchar, um, Pete Buttigieg, some people like Joe Biden, that we didn't need another moderate candidate to come in and buy this thing. But people seem to be supporting Bloomberg precisely because he'll spend all his money. He, you know, he makes $4 billion a year in, in EBITDA. He could spend a couple billion of that and it would change his lifestyle. Not at all. That's, I mean, is that okay? Is, is Trump that bad? <laughs> uh, Trump probably is that bad. Yeah. And so even Bloomberg, I would hold my nose and go knock on doors, even for Bloomberg. I, I wanted to just add as a footnote to Ed's comments, though, that, that Bloomberg uh, is a giant uncontrolled experiment in figuring out whether it is right that there are no swing voters 
et cetera. Because what Bloomberg has done is, is, you know, he's someone who outside of New York and elite circles, no one had ever heard of. Um, and he has absolutely no national constituency based on anything he's done previously. He is, he is seeing if you can buy your way to the presidency. Um, and if the answer to that is yes, that will suggest that, in fact, that there are swing voters, albeit in a, in a bad way, you know, that what he is doing is he's buying, he's buying exposure. He's saturating media markets. He's saturating television advertising. He's saturating social media um, because he's spending just vast amounts of money that enables him to do that. Is that fair? No, of course not. Um, it's horrible. Um, it's, it's outrageous. It's, it's offensive to democracy in every possible way. If it works, however, one of the things that that will tell us is that he, or perhaps someday she, who can spend enough to saturate the airwaves will in fact be the person who, who can buy their way to victory because they will change the minds of voters who, who haven't heard of them. Right. Or, or, and or I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I guess it doesn't necessarily completely answer all of our questions about what matters more turnout or people actually changing their minds, because it, it, it could operate on both of those levels simultaneously. Um, but but I think we're about to find out whether simply saturating every possible uh, uh, information outlet with with pro Bloomberg messages is sufficient to make a difference. And, and I do, I mean, I do think that the danger posed by Donald Trump is, is so unique, going back to your original question, it is so unique that I would take the lesser of two evils, Mike Bloomberg, uh, over Donald Trump. Bloomberg, we obviously have a track record. Um, I don't like very much about him, but he is not completely bonkers. You know, I, I think that a Bloomberg, a president Mike Bloomberg, would be a president who is far more like previous presidents uh, of either party than Donald Trump. Um, and so for that reason, you know, despite all that is awful about it, uh, I would indeed support it. So, Ed, I'm reading between the lines. We've known each other a long time. And when you talk about all of this, I'm getting the impression you think the Democratic candidate is going to be Bloomberg. Explain how that's going to happen. I, I mean, I actually think it could it could be Sanders. Um, in fact, you know, if you look at the, some of the delegate forecasting models for Super Tuesday and beyond, Sanders gets a plurality of um, of the delegates, and Kevin Sheeky, um, Bloomberg's campaign manager, has you know been raising the ante on that scenario by saying, "Look, um, it's going to be too late unless some of you other moderates drop out." Um, because we're going to split the moderate vote on Super Tuesday. Um, so I do believe it could which, be Sanders. Which takes um, some nerve. <laughs> which is extraordinary. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of bare-faced um, and shameless. Um, but that's, you know, the logic The logic there is also, is also discernible. Um, uh, so uh, I, I'm not sure if, 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 if we got into, a, let's say, the latest... Projection: Forty-one percent of delegates for Sanders, and eighteen percent of delegates for um, Bloomberg, and eighteen percent for Biden, and then the rest are smattering. Um, if we got into that situation, the rules say then we go to a second um, ballot, and, and you're freed up to vote for who you want to on the second ballot. Bloomberg, Bloomberg is a very smart man, and he's not 
he's, he doesn't, he, he's not a man of the people. You know, he relies on data to, to figure out what, what Americans are thinking rather than, you know, hanging out in pool bars or whatever. Um, but he'll have the data which will tell him uh, what polls today are telling um, him, which is 53% of Sanders voters would not vote for Bloomberg if he was a nominee. Um, so I suspect in that scenario, with the data, knowing what he's being told, Bloomberg would be king maker rather than king. Um, and the way he would do that is he would say, look, all my money is available to whoever the nominee is, but there's going to be a lot more available if, say, Klobuchar is the nominee or Matt Pete is the nominee than if Sanders is the nominee. And take your pick. It's a democratic process. I am withdrawing my name, but I am not withdrawing my money. Um, my money, my money will be there, but it's the level of which, um, the level of money that will be there depends on, you know, whether I'm really enthusiastic about the nominee. But I will endorse whoever it is. And I'm sure he will be asked at the beginning of the nominee. And I'm sure he'll say yes. He's smart. He said yes before. Um, but. He will, he, will, he will say yes with a caveat, and that caveat will have one fewer zero on it uh, than, uh, than if it were another person, including him. And that's, you know, that's my hunch, based on nothing more than sort of, you know, listening to the music, to the cacophony, um, rather than any sort of uh, hard and fast prediction. But that's my hunch as to where this is most likely now to end up. Um, uh, and... I guess that's a less bad situation in terms of the democratic turnout model than Bloomberg himself making himself king. So, Rosa, you know, one of the things that we talk about here, obviously, is foreign policy and national security. And while we talk about how the Democrats have very similar agendas on the domestic side, the just the contrast between... I think Bloomberg foreign policy and Sanders foreign policy would be really quite striking because my sense is that Bloomberg has said, you know, he's perfectly happy dealing with the Chinese. He's much more sort of in the free trade, let a thousand economic flowers bloom. He's, he flew to Israel in the midst of um, problems there to show that his support for Israel but Bernie is, you know, thinks the Israeli government is guilty of war crimes, uh, very harshly anti-Chinese, harshly anti-Saudi. Um, uh, um, there's a real gap. A, a Sanders presidency and a Bloomberg presidency would be very different for the world, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think they would be. Um, although I also think that something that everybody that about Donald Trump, it turned out not to be true for Trump, would would be true for both Bloomberg and Sanders and any other semi-normal president. And th that is that every, what everyone said about Trump that turned out not to be true was, well, you know, the presidency will tame him whether he likes it or not. The, the career bureaucracy will tame him whether he likes it or not. And presidents come, presidents go. They have all kinds of wacky ideas or innovative ideas, and for better or for worse, they generally find uh, when they get into office um, that they are uh, constrained by their own policymaking processes. They're constrained by Congress, and they end up with foreign policies that resemble each other far more closely than not, and that will happen to Donald Trump. Um, now, with Trump, it, it hasn't entirely happened. 
right? Although in, in certain ways, despite his, his rhetoric, his actual policy decisions have not been as radical as his rhetoric. Um, but in, in all kinds of ways, Trump has, has defied all expectations that he will be constrained by sort of normal processes. I think, I think though, that both Sanders and, and Bloomberg would, would be much more likely to end up being constrained, again, for better or for worse. If you're a Sanders fan, for worse. Um, um, you know, if you don't like Bernie Sanders, probably for better, into what is, you know, a more, quote unquote, centrist foreign policy regardless. I, I think, for instance, take, take another very different example, one that you didn't mention, David, uh, Sanders' proposals to really radically slash the defense budget. Um, it's quite hard to slash the defense budget because Congress uh, really likes a big defense budget because it's a fantastic source of, of pork. It's a fantastic way to deliver dollars to your constituencies back home. Uh, and as previous presidents have discovered, you try to cut the defense budget, Congress just puts the money right back in. Um, so, so I think, again, you know, unless you're Donald Trump and you're simply willing to play fast and loose with all rules relating to appropriations and, and authorization to spend money and just plain ignore them, um, you know, if you're, a, if you're a president who believes in following the normal rules on process, uh, it, it it ends up being much harder than people would think to actually bring about radical shifts in policy. Um, so so my guess is that a Bernie Sanders foreign policy would not be nearly as radical as the foreign policy proposals of candidate Bernie Sanders. And again, how you feel about that depends on you know how you feel about the substance of his proposals. Um, Mike Bloomberg's foreign policy, I suspect, would look regardless. Uh, a whole lot like the foreign policy of uh, prior administrations. Um, uh, so I think there were. I, so I think that I, I think that there would probably be more continuity than one might expect, regardless of the differences between them right now. What do you think, Ed? How do you think the world would react to President Sanders versus President Bloomberg? So I think Sanders isn't as radical on foreign policy as. Um, as some people think, uh, in terms of what he's putting forward today. His history is pretty radical. You know, the famous uh, honeymoon in the Soviet Union, his favorable words about Chavez, his uh, favorable words about the Sandinistas. He was very much a sort of, you know, Cold War leftist who saw any American intervention as a bad thing, some of which, on which he was correct. You know, Vietnam, of course, he famously protested against, and I think quite rightly, protested against. I guess what I find ironic about this focus on his clearly very naive trip to the Soviet Union in 1988 is, sure, he was talking, um, you know, uh, he clearly had some kind of smitten um, Aphrodite approach to the Soviet Union, which is inexplicable even at the time, let alone in retrospect. But that was then. Today, he has a hawkish position on Russia. He has a very skeptical, critical uh, view of Putin. He wants to tackle corruption and kleptocracy globally. He wants money laundering to be a priority. Um, he wants to um, clean up the financial system and, and stop America from being an aider and a better to authoritarians around the world. So what he was historically and how wrong and naive or whatever he was then compared to what he is today versus what the president of the United States is today towards Russia strikes me as a far more 
interesting juxtaposition um, than going into history. Um, I, I think that Sanders, you know, in, in other ways, would represent continuity in a weird sense with Obama and Trump, which is America just less engaged with the world, certainly less prone to military intervention um, and wars of choice. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, there would be very specific dimensions to Sanders are, are in certain areas of foreign policy. Latin America, as a you know, an old leftist, matters a lot to him. He'd probably be nice to Cuba. Um, he, uh, he'd probably, you know, um, get along well with um, Obrador in Mexico and uh, Eva Morales, well, whoever's um, the new Eva Morales in, in the Andes. Um, uh, but I don't think these are terribly consequential changes, and some of them are good. Um, is he pro-NATO? Yes, that's his formal position. Um, is he skeptical on trade and WTO? Yes. Again, though, there's no difference with Trump there, or indeed with Warren. Um, so I, do, I don't think I don't think there's a, a great sort of upheaval um, entailed necessarily on foreign policy in a Sanders administration. What I would focus um, so uh, my my ultimate instinct is we're overstating how radical Sanders is on on foreign policy. I'd agree with Rosa about Bloomberg. I think. Uh, he would be a more conventional American president. He would probably be very different to most of his fellow Democrats and to Trump on China. And, you know, that's going to be a weak spot of his that's going to be probed uh, more in, uh, as the campaign goes on, that he has, that he, that he has a, um, he has a liking for command systems. Um, and I guess that's, you know, what he's been doing in his, in his, I mean, really, don't we all? <laughs> yes. Yeah. If I was at the top of a command system, I would, I would like to command. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm on my own, uh, um, autonomous system where I barely, barely exercise self-control. So I'm speaking very theoretically here. Um, but I think, you know, his softness for China, um, his liking for Xi Jinping, it will would will become a, a campaign issue, particularly you know in the context of his being an unabashedly pro globalization free trade candidate. Although it doesn't seem like any of this matters, does it, Rosa? I mean, you know, the Democrats. I mean, if they run against Trump, none of it matters because none of the policies matter. Trump will say whatever he wants. Democrats will be outraged, and the Republicans will say we don't care. Um, but you know, in terms of the Democratic side of this thing. It's all going to come down to arithmetic pretty quickly. And, you know, if the Democrats want somebody who's going to beat Trump, you know, the guy who can spend $2 billion without blinking an eye is going to be the guy who's going to have a better shot at beating Trump than the others, I suppose. Um, what I don't understand is this, Rosa. Maybe you can answer this question for me. seems to me there's a couple of progressive candidates and a couple of uh, centrist candidates. and of the two progressive candidates, one of them is 78 years old, has had a heart attack, has a bunch of supporters who are really unpleasant, won't release his medical records, never has gotten really anything done in the United States Senate. Um, and the other one offers essentially the same platform as him with a much better record of achievement and none of those issues. Um, but she's essentially being erased because seems like because she's a woman and in the center you've got the you know several choices 
two of which are over, you know, 77 years of age. One's a billionaire. The other one is somebody who seems kind of past his prime. Um, and, uh, and Pete Buttigieg is a guy who's never really the same had age any- as a billionaire is also a little past his prime, by the way. Right. Well, exactly. The billionaire is, is, is 78. And, and um, Pete Buttigieg has never really had a job of substantial responsibility in his life. And, and it's certainly not equipped for the presidency. And yet there's a woman who is the most successful senator during her time in the Senate, passed more bills, wins in a red state, uh, wins in red districts, uh, comes from the Midwest. Um, and is and, you know, she and the other women, you know, women get all these endorsements, and yet they just don't seem to have traction. And yet, women voters are crucial in this mix. How? What? What happened here? Was the Hillary Clinton experience so devastating for the Democratic Party, even though she won by three million votes, that we're just, you know, we we can't go back there again? Is the misogyny so great? It seems to me that you know there's. Klobuchar and, and Warner, the kind of no-brainers of, of their respective wing, wings of the party, and 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 yet they're faded. Well, I, I don't know what we should attribute it to, and I'm not quite ready to just attribute it to sexism because I think you know, as we as we academics like to say, it's, it's overdetermined. There there's so many things going on right now, you know, ranging from the Bloomberg money effect to the sort of cult-like status of Bernie Sanders. Um, you, you know, there's so much going on that I, I'm not sure we can say, oh, it's, they're not getting traction because they're women, as opposed to it's these 8,000 other reasons or all of them combined. I, I do think, you know, there is some evidence uh, that just as uh, black voters were fearful that the country was not going to vote for a black candidate this time around, and that, that black voters so prioritized getting rid of Donald Trump that they feel like, hey, you know, sure, I'd love to see a black president again, but the most important thing for me right now is getting rid of Donald Trump, and I'm concerned that at this moment in time, a black candidate is not most most likely to do that. Um, I there's there's also some evidence, at least, that people, including women, uh, in the Democratic Party, are saying, I would love to see a woman be president, but again, I don't think at this moment, uh, you know, I don't want to take any risk. You know, I, I want to, whoever is most likely to beat Trump and Trump has whipped up such a misogynist frenzy in this country that I'm fearful that it can't be a woman this time around. Now, obviously, the flaw in the logic on, on both of those points is, is that uh, there's no particular evidence that, you know, anybody else is all that well positioned to beat Trump. Um, you know, Biden still does better against Trump in the head to head polls than anybody else, but not by a whole hell of a lot. And obviously, every single one of these candidates has some significant weaknesses. So, so I don't know how how much does that anxiety among Democrats uh, that this this year it's just too risky to have a woman enter into people saying, "Oh yeah, I really love Amy Klobuchar, I really love Elizabeth Warren, but uh, I'm not going to support them right now because it's just too risky." I, I don't know. I think it's hard to say, as I said, because there, there's so much else going on. Um, but I also think you know. One of the things that seems pretty clear from the polling uh, is that Democrats at the moment are really fickle and they are changing their minds every three days about what they want. Um, you know, I mean, we've just seen 
you know, incredible ups and downs in the polling. Um, so it would not, I, I, and I don't know what's going on with that. I don't know how much it's media driven and how much it's that people started out uncertain and so small shifts can leave them for two days thinking, oh, heck, I'm, you know, I'm behind Pete. No, oh, heck, I changed my mind. You know, it's all about Bernie. Oh, heck, I changed my mind again. It's all about Biden. I, you know, I have no idea what's going on, but my guess is that we are we're going to continue to see real fluctuations in the polling, you know, at least until we get past Super Tuesday when maybe things will stabilize. I, I, I have a question that I would like to throw out for the two of you as, as uh, political observers uh, of longstanding duration and watch this stuff more closely than me. At, at one point, there were even rumors um, uh, somewhat horrible rumors um, that you know Hillary Clinton was waiting in the wings for a brokered convention, waiting to pop out and say, "Here I am, everyone. You know, I actually out won one last time, and I'll win again." Um, you know, or or God knows who, you know, Michelle Obama, some other figure. Um, and I wonder whether Ed and David, if you think there's any any realistic likelihood that uh, if we have no one winning a clear majority of delegates by the time we get to the convention that we'll end up with someone who is none of the current candidates, uh, but is someone completely different. Well, Ed, when she said many, many years of experience, I think she meant you. <laughs> no, I think she meant you. <laughs> we can compete. Why don't we both answer? But you first, David. I, I defer to Ed. Wow. <laughs> David, David, you're now supposed to say age before beauty or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something, something, something like that. I'm, I, um, yeah, that would fall apart at that point. Yeah, I, I, I guess the, the, the real answer there is, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't think some other candidate's going to come from left field. Um, my wife, on a regular basis, says she thinks Oprah is the only one who can beat Trump, uh, and she's half kidding and half serious. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, like Michelle Obama, and a lot of people like Hillary Clinton. And frankly, you know, there are political nerds out there. Sherrod Brown, you know, reappeared on the scene and said, no, I want to do this. You know, they might line up behind him. Um, but I got a feeling we're too far into this thing. And in the next couple of weeks, so many delegates are going to get awarded um, that the horse is going to essentially be out of the barn. And I think what's going to have to happen is you know, people are going to have to have money. And I think Biden is having trouble right now financially. And he's counting on finishing first or second in Nevada and South Carolina. Um, my guess is he's going to finish third or fourth in Nevada and South Carolina. And if he does, um, he's going to falter. Um, and uh, my guess is it's also going to be very hard for Klobuchar and Buttigieg to keep it up, go, you know, going forward, uh, be, just financially. Um, and that may be true for Elizabeth Warren. She has a somewhat better campaign and more grassrootsy in terms of the money. Um, but my guess is that three weeks from now, it's going to be Bernie Sanders versus Mike Bloomberg effectively. And that's where we're going for the rest of this race. And it's going to become a big question of, will the Bernie people support Bloomberg? Will the Bloomberg people get the centrist, you know, unified behind them? 
would Bloomberg embrace a progressive vice president candidate? Because because he's been kind of harsh on those things, and you know, you know, Bloomberg Warren is kind of hard to see, right? Because although you know, to some people that would be the the magic the magic bullet. Um, and and would a brokered convention that pitted Bloomberg against Sanders tear the party apart and produce, you know, some sufficient number of third party um, supporters or disaffections that either because of Sanders or because of Bloomberg, that would lead Trump to win. Um, anyway, that's the way it looks to me. Um, somebody who is regularly wrong about these things. How does it look to you, Ed? Yeah, and one of the events I went to in uh, New Hampshire was a rally, uh, well, sort of a town hall meeting that Tulsi Gabbard did. And there, there are a lot of questions about who's paying for all these ubiquitous Tulsi Gabbard billboards, which aren't cheap, um, because not all of them are showing up in her federal election filings. Um, so there's clearly some kind of uh, sugar sugar parent around um helping the Gabbard campaign, you know, which is only picking up two, three um, percent, um, but which is uh, large enough to imagine a third party bid that um, could play a spoiler. The um, Gabbard could, could play the spoiler and all she would need is two or three percent. Her views on her views on foreign policy uh, align both with the sort of Trumpian right and the hard left. And, you know, I think that that kind of situation is very conceivable if um, if Bloomberg is the nominee. I'm I'm a little bit more open-minded, not open-minded. I'm a little bit more open to the prospect of there being some kind of a white knight um, nominee in the context of a broker convention, whether it's you know um, uh, Oprah Winfrey or Stacey Abrams um, or Sherrod Brown, as you mentioned. Um, it, it would depend on how bitter and entrenched Bloomberg and Sanders camps have become. And I suspect they're already pretty bitter, embittered and entrenched. By July, they would be sort of ready to wring each other's necks. And, and therefore, the, 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 um, the, the atmosphere for, for, for somebody else to come in would be quite, um, would be quite enabling. You know, if you look at where Bloomberg is going negative, he's, deliberately not gone negative. He's uh, just been targeting Trump until about a week ago. Now he's targeting Sanders. He's not targeting... Um, no, no, he targeted, targeted Biden today, too. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I mean, I think he's responding to Biden. Um, you know, I think Biden's been targeting Bloomberg. But generally, the strategy there is to target Sanders and to try and, you know, maximize the possibility that, that Biden and Mayor Pete and others drop out before Super Tuesday and endorse Bloomberg. Um, you know, that's that's his best chance of getting to of getting more delegates than Sanders. Um, you know, in which case he probably would be the nominee. But I don't think if, if Biden is still in the race on Super Tuesday and Klobuchar and Mayor Pete are too, um, I don't think there's any way of stopping. Um, Sanders getting more delegates than the rest of them. Did that answer your question, Rosa? Well, um, sort of, yes. Uh, I mean, wow. I think you're both saying you don't think it's very likely, um, which, which in some ways is a relief because the thought of, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton 
swooping down from the, the wings is a little terrifying um, at the convention. Um, I, my, I, just, I just hope that the Democratic candidates don't do so much damage to one another in the next couple of months uh, that it becomes harder for the eventual nominee to win. Well, we shall see. Um, tonight, probably, as some of you listen to this podcast, there'll be a debate in Nevada. Um, and we'll follow up on that tomorrow with another podcast because that's what we're talking about. But the other thing I want to follow up on is that I think, you know, as we focus on this political season, um, it has served as quite the smokescreen for a president to make some of his most bold, uh, and reckless and dangerous moves towards authoritarianism ever. Uh, and so <clears throat> we'll pick up on that also in our uh, podcast tomorrow. And next week, we'll get back on schedule. This week was a holiday week and uh, President's Week. We were celebrating Millard Fillmore and James Buchanan, a few other of the real beauties that have been American presidents. And um, um, uh, next week, we'll get back to a normal schedule. And we look forward to your joining us for that and for a whole bunch of other interesting things. But until tomorrow and the follow-up on this debate and the follow-up on uh, autocracy in America, I want to say thank you very much to Ed Luce and to Rosa Brooks and to all of you for thank joining you us. Thank you. And uh, go, to, go to the DSRnetwork.com for more about what we are doing here at the DSR Network. Bye-bye. <laughs>